Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all. What a joy to be together. What a joy to worship God and turn into his word as we study his word together. I hope you got a Bible with you. Turn it to the New Testament book of Romans, chapter one. It's a joy to have you here, friends on live stream. It's a joy that you're joining us. So glad that you're here. Uh, And we are studying through the theme of Advent all this month, and we've just been looking at text after text. The word Advent just means arrival. So we're asking the question, what does it mean? Now that God has arrived, what, what comes with that? What are the implications that God the Son took on human flesh, that God became Emmanuel, God with us? So we're thinking about that by asking a number of questions about the relevancy that that has for our lives. So the first question we asked was, can God be trusted? And we looked at the text in Mark, chapter one, verse 15 in particular, where Jesus says, I'm here as the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. Everything that God said was true. Watch what happens next. So he's the fulfillment. And then we asked the question last week, can my past be erased? And we looked at the wonderful word that changed all of human history to tell us die. It is finished in John 19, 30. And then the question we're asking this morning is, what should the world do with Jesus? Because the relevance of Advent is not simply personal. It is universal. It is cosmic. The entrance of God into the world brings about a whole new state of things. He came, and because he came, everything is gonna be different. And so Paul is gonna talk about that here in this text. We're gonna read Romans chapter one. I'm starting in verse one, and I'm gonna read through verse four if you'd follow along as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel just means good news, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So you're sitting with someone who is unfamiliar with the Bible, okay? They're maybe familiar with the Bible generally, but, but see it as these individual different books that are about different things, largely about us living a moral life and it's associated with God somehow, right? And you're trying to get across to them the fact that the Bible, 66 books, is one big story. All the little stories are pointing up and saying, look up there, there's a bigger story that's developing, a story that God is writing in the world, a story of restoration, a story of of salvation, a story of renewal that God is doing in hearts of his people and those who trust in his Messiah, and it goes global, right? So you're trying to get that message across, but here's here's the kicker. You only get to choose four sentences from the New Testament to get the central story of the Bible across to them. So what four sentences do you pick? And really, that's the exercise I gave myself in this series. What four sentences are big enough pillars to hold up the entire New Testament? Uh, they, have the, they have the load-bearing capacity to hold up the entire New Testament. Now, you could choose four different 
sentences than the ones that I've chosen. But I would propose to you that if you were to choose four sentences, you're going to have to find four sentences that do the same kinds of things. You're going to need a sentence about the arrival of Jesus as God with us. You're going to need a sentence about his death on the cross, about the atonement. You're going to need a sentence about his bodily resurrection. And you're going to need a sentence about the future about what he does when he returns, or about the new creation. That could be a number of different kinds of sentences, but it's about the future that comes about as a result of the second advent of Jesus, the Son of God. Right, so we've got another sentence. We've been looking at one sentence after another, and we've got another sentence this morning. And you might say, well, you just read four verses. Yeah, but it's one sentence. So it feels like cheating, but because it, it, it's a run-on sentence. But it is one sentence. And actually, our focus isn't going to be on verse 1 and 2. We needed that because we didn't just want to start in the middle of a sentence. So we, we started the way Paul did. But then we're really going to pick up and focus on verses 3 and 4. Because what you have in verse 3 and 4 is basically Christmas and Easter, back to back. Christmas and these massive pillars of, of what God has done in history through Jesus. Verse three is Christmas, so you just see there, right? Paul speaks of the, the seed of David, that Jesus comes as the seed, ek spermatos David. I mean, it is, a, it is about, it is a language of human origin. It is a human lineage kind of language. He comes from the human lineage of David. So it's pointing to the incarnation there in verse three as the fulfillment of promises. And then verse four is Easter. You see the, the language. Paul speaks of Christ being, those words, appointed as the powerful son of God by the resurrection of the dead. And then at the very beginning, he says, what I'm about to talk to you about is, is the message of the gospel. It's a message of good news, and it's concerning Jesus Christ. So all the good news that God has in the world and is going to bring about in the world comes, and it hinges on the person of Jesus Christ and what he does in Christmas and Easter. In other words, we can't understand the gospel Paul is going to talk about for his entire book of Romans. We're not going to be able to understand the gospel if we don't see the connection between Christmas and Easter. Now, last week, we looked at the connection between Christmas and Good Friday, Christmas and the cross, that the one who was born in the manger was born to die. He was born to take our sins away. He was born to give his life as a ransom. He was, he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, right? So we saw the connection between Christmas and the cross. But today, we need to realize that the son who came into this earth and was born in a manger and was born to die, death could not hold him. And that is an essential aspect of the gospel. Without that, there is no gospel. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Jesus isn't raised, let's all go home. Like, well, why are we even here singing these songs? We've got no hope. If he's still in the ground, you're still in your sins, right? So, so everything, everything hinges on resurrection. Once Christ dies, and that had to happen, but once he dies, he's got to come out of the tomb or we're toast, right? So Paul is talking about that. So just think about it in terms of this question we're asking. What should the world do now that Jesus is risen? Now that the one who came and was born and died on the cross is ruling and reigning at the right hand of majesty on high. Well, everything's got to change now. That, is the, that has become the most cosmically relevant event in history, what should the world do with Jesus? I think that um, C.S. Lewis, the great apologist and Christian philosopher, I think he unpacked some of the relevance here when he made this statement years ago. A man 
who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So there is genuine and universal relevance from the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. Look, as we look at texts of scripture, and this isn't just true this morning, it's true every Sunday. God doesn't reveal himself in his word so that we stay the same. Every text in scripture has divine punch. Every text in scripture has, has a divine intention, a divine claim, a divine agenda that it's driving us toward as God's people. So if every passage has a divine intention, here's my effort at trying to crystallize or summarize the divine intent of this passage, the primary claim of this passage, it's gonna be on the screen. If we grasp the identity of Jesus Christ, Messiah, offspring of David, and risen king, we will bow in reverent worship and offer ourselves in unreserved obedience. Let me say that again. If we grasp the identity of Jesus Christ, displayed in this text as Messiah, offspring of David, and risen king, we will bow in reverent worship and offer ourselves in unreserved obedience. So consider with me for the rest of our time two phases of divine sonship, two stages, if you will, of Christ's existence. Stage number one, incarnation, behold the son in weakness. Behold the son in weakness. Look with me at verse three. The gospel concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. So just to get this out of the way, Jesus did not become the son of God when he was born in Bethlehem. He has always been the son of God. He is the second person of the, of the Trinity, the eternal son of God took on human flesh on Christmas day, but he was eternally the son of God. There was a heresy that arose early in, the, in church history called adoptionism, which said that God adopted the human baby Jesus and said, you're gonna be the one. You're gonna be my son, the son of God. And then he lived his life, the human person lived his life, and then he died on the cross, and then at his resurrection, they actually use Romans chapter one, verse four, adoptionist heretics use that verse. Romans chapter one, verse four, to say that Jesus was installed as God, that he became God, that God divinized the human Jesus at the resurrection. Friends, Advent is a perfect time of year for us to get really straight on Christology. It's a great time of year for us to get clear and rehearse what the Bible says about the second person of the Trinity. Jesus did not become the Son of God on Christmas morning. The scriptures are clear. God the Son existed eternally within the fellowship of the Trinity. So the Apostle John, for example, the, the way that he opens 
his gospel is just mind-blowingly awesome. In the beginning. So there you are on page one of Genesis, and guess who's there? The Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's the co-equality of the persons of the Trinity. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing that was created has been created. And then you want to find out, well, who is this Word, this reference to the Word? You keep reading in John chapter one, and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And John did see his glory. He saw Jesus, the word made flesh. Jesus was there. It's so clear in John chapter one. It's so clear when Jesus says mind-blowing things, like when he says, before Abraham was, I am. So if you're doing the math in that moment, you're saying, so wait, so you're saying you're, you're 2,000 years old. Is that right? And Jesus would be like, bump it up. Three thousand, yeah, just keep going, right? So all the way back there to the beginning, Jesus was there when the blueprints were drawn up for the foundations of the world. Jesus prays in John chapter 17 in the presence of his disciples. He says, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed, right? And you just, you ever been in a prayer circle where you're kind of holding hands and somebody says something, it's kind of like, hmm, that's a little different, right? That had to be one of those moments, like, did he just say, right? But they're still coming into contact and grasping the, how momentous this is. He existed before the foundations of the world with God the Father, that is, Right, you can't get your mind around that. And this, this only makes the incarnation all the more stunning. Why? Because by birth, the humbled son took our weakness. I encountered, I've told this story in different ways, you know, when I went to college, the Lord really came in like a flood in a really new and wonderful way in my life and I, I started to read God's word and nobody was telling me to, I just, I wanted to and there were places in scripture I had not read through the whole Bible and so there were places in the Bible, even though I was a pastor's kid, people might have assumed that, there were huge chunks of scripture I'd never read before and if dad hadn't preached through that book of the Bible before I was 12 years old when he died, then I'd, I'd never heard that preached either. So. I, was re I just came to Philippians, and I'm reading Philippians, and I'm like, oh, this is all new. What's Philippians? And I'm reading through Philippians, and the Lord was just firing the truth of everything that's in that text. And I come to chapter two, and I read this poem. I see these words indented, and I find out later on, this is a Christ hymn. This is one of the hymns of the early church about Jesus, and it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it just talks about his descent into abject humiliation, and then his ascent into total exaltation. And it was just blowing my mind in my dorm room at the GLT building as I'm reading these words. Christ, though existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and those words are just so stunning to me. I'm just looking at them even now. I've got them highlighted, so 
though in the form of God, emptied, servant, humbled, obedient, cross. This early hymn of the church, and it just blew their minds because they lived in the Roman Empire. It's a highly stratified empire. Kings don't do this. No one does this. And, and it really captures that, that early hymn. It captures the movement of the divine son of God from heaven to humiliation to exaltation. To be in heaven and then to come here. You think, can you imagine what a shock to your system it would be? Not only to dwell in heaven, the son of God dwelled in heaven, but not just to dwell in heaven, but to be the central object of heaven's joy. The central point of heaven's praise, where the angels are singing an antiphonal song, holy, 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 and they're singing to you, the Son, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You're in absolute joyous fellowship for all eternity, hearing this music of divine honor and praise. To be there and then to come here, to be there robed in glory, then to come here wrapped in weakness and wrapped in shame, the glory of his divinity buried under veil after veil of his humanity so that Isaiah would prophesy and say, when he gets here, nobody's gonna recognize him. Nobody's gonna say, yeah, he's the one. He looks like God material. So there would be no beauty, nor comeliness, nothing attractive that would make you say, he stands out, he must be the one. They'd say things more like, is this the carpenter's kid? Or he comes from Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You're not from Nazareth, ultimately, and you know it. There are contrasts in verse three and four, just look down at the text with me. Striking contrast, you see the phrase, descendant of David on the one hand, and powerful son of God on the other. Absolute contrast, right? According to the flesh is a phrase on the one hand, and according to the spirit of holiness on the other. It, the, the absolute contrast between Christmas and Easter, two very different stages of existence in, in the son. So stage one, incarnation, behold the son of weakness. Stage two, resurrection, behold the son in power. Behold the son in power. Look at verse four. And he was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And so we come full circle by birth. The humbled son took our weakness and by appointment the risen son rules in power. The risen son rules in power. If, if we keep reading this same letter to the Romans, you get to chapter six and you find out that Jesus was the first to be resurrected, but those who believe in him, those who are united to his death are united also to his resurrection. It's a, it's a mind-blowing thing. Here's what Paul says, therefore we, believers, were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Romans 6 is saying, 
Right now, as a believer, your life is wired to the empty tomb. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus was the Easter that launched a thousand Easter's. Your Easter, my Easter, new life comes barreling out of the grave and everybody who hitches on to Jesus, who is united to Jesus by faith, down you go in death, your old life is gone, new things start happening, new things are firing, there's new life. Look, if we're not careful, cultural Christianity will become normal to us. It'll start being weird to us. We'll be shocked when we see people build their lives around their identity as followers of Jesus Christ. People who build their lives around their identity as a part of the church of Jesus Christ, as those who are under the word of Christ, under the commands of Christ, living for the mission of Christ. That will look weird, right? But in the New Testament, that's what they call baseline Christianity. Baseline discipleship following him as Lord. I met someone recently who uh, he knows a member of our church and that member of, of our church was being baptized that morning. And I'm talking with this guy afterwards and he said, I just need to tell you, man, I've known this guy since high school. And he said, he was the ringleader of everything that's opposed to Christianity. He said, honestly, I was a Christian in high school. This is the last guy I ever thought would end up in the waters. And he said, we, we lost touch after high school. And he said, then we reconnected some years later and within 10 minutes, and then he said, we would have an ongoing relationship. He said, as I'm talking to him, I'm thinking, who is this person? <laughs> like he is completely unrecognizable to me. Where, where does this joy come from? What, this selflessness, this, this sense of care for others, where did this kindness come from? I never saw it. Not only didn't I see it, I never dreamed I'd see it in this guy. Is that your Christianity? Son of God in power, breathing life into sinners and making them new Christianity. Is that your Christianity? There's a Christianity that, that embraces as acceptable that's embraced as acceptable and, and it's not making dead things live. Right, well, Romans 1 wants to work on that. Romans 1 wants to get in there and say, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, this son who is the risen reigning king starts to fire things on the inside. This gospel begins to set us free and give us new life. Stage one and stage two of Christ's redemptive work, they're contrasted not only in the demeanor, but in their effects. So in your notes, First advent, the son came in weakness to save and the world rejected him. That's about how it went down, right? The light came into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. He came to his own and his own received him not. It's kind of the summary statement of what happened once Jesus got here. So he came in weakness though, right? The son of God, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, he doesn't look like much. Right, this is the one who, touching his divine nature, he is upholding the molecules of, of the manger, of his mother, and of the universe by the word of his power. And yet, he's, he doesn't have command of his own motor skills. He, he comes wrapped in weakness. The son of God teetering down the hall. You can imagine Mary there just holding her arms out. Keep coming. Joseph's counting the steps. They're busting out laughing, right? And she's just saying, Duta, the Greek word for come. 
The same word that Jesus would use later when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And you can imagine him as a two-year-old. She's saying, do that, do that, come. Wrapped in weakness, wrapped in flesh, the son of God, hungry, we see him. We see him thirsty, we see him tired. We see him in the wilderness and angels come to minister to him in his feeble condition after his battle in the wilderness. We see the son of God, he's unable to carry the cross all the way to the spot, so Simon of Cyrene has to carry it for him to get it there right. But then stage one gives way to stage two. In the resurrection, friends, we see the same Jesus who was, Paul will say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse four, who was crucified in weakness, but who now lives by God's power. Absolute change, right? What should the world do with Jesus? What should the world do now that he's ruling? Now that he's back from the grave, right, there's a new set of circumstances that has obtained in light of the resurrection. I think the implications come through in a song that was written years ago by a rap art, Christian rap artist named Shailen, and he writes these words. Elvis is dead, Picasso is dead, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead, Marilyn Monroe is dead, however, Jesus is alive. Plato is dead, Socrates is dead, Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead, Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead, Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead, Elijah Muhammad is dead, however, Jesus is alive. Nero is dead, Constantine is dead, Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun are dead, Alexander the Great is dead, however, Jesus is alive. Pharaoh is dead. These are the biggest threats in the whole Bible. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius and Sennacherib are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Caesar is dead. Herod is dead. Annas, Caiaphas, and Judas are dead. Pontius Pilate is dead. However, Jesus is alive. And now you've got to deal with it. Right, you, you see how the fact of the resurrection is a really intrusive, uncomfortable, thrilling, but it's an intrusive claim, right? It has a way of forcing itself to the front and saying, look at me, deal with me. Christ arose, right? There are very few options left to us now. So you can spend all your mental energy to disbelieve the resurrection of Jesus and try to systematically, one by one, take out all the arguments and evidence, evidences of his resurrection, or you get to worship Jesus Christ as God and give him total control of your life. We've got limited options. What's the world gonna do now that Jesus is alive? You know, sometimes we create these False dichotomies between Jesus the Savior and Jesus the Lord. You can't believe on a half Christ. You can't have the Savior part and deny the Lord part. He it's a package deal. It's, a, it's an all or nothing situation. And, and by the way, Savior really is a meaningless concept if he's not Lord. All the things that Jesus prophesied or spoke about concerning his death, if he doesn't rise from the dead, again, Paul says, go home, because none of it was true. If we love the idea of Jesus being the Savior, you need to equally love the idea of Jesus being Lord and having all the authority as the Lord and King because at the end of the day, after all, Christ is only able to save us from our enemies because he's the Lord, because he has authority to do it. 
He's the king, right? I heard a story about a little boy, the boy's name, now he's a grown man, but he tells a story, his name is a Scottish theologian named Colin Smith, and he said, when I was a little kid, he said, I'll never forget, I would go to the junkyard with my dad because we didn't have a lot of money and if our car broke, we would just go and dad would try to fix it by taking parts off other vehicles. And he said, we went to the junkyard and it was one of my first trips, I was really small, and I'm just seeing this sprawling junkyard and my imagination's going wild. And he said, there are guard dogs by the fence back there, the back fence, because he said some people would steal parts, but they'd go by that back fence and they would throw their part over the fence. Then they'd walk out like they didn't decide to get anything today. They'd go around to the back of the fence and pick up the part. So they had these guard dogs on chains. And his dad said, just don't go back there by the fence. So he takes 50 or so steps away from his dad. His dad's taking car apart. And he said, I'm not, you know, I, wanted to I was about to climb up in the back of this beaten down truck. And he said, I heard this snarling dog that had slipped off the lead and it was running, barreling toward me. And he said, honestly, in my life, I don't think I've ever been more terrified than seeing that dog, my height, running at me full speed. And he said, and my dad heard the dog as well. And he said, I can't remember what he grabbed. He said if it was a stick or if it was an exhaust pipe, but dad came running with that thing in my direction and he got there first and he intercepted the dog. And he said he swung that thing in his hand and that dog yelped and ran away. The illustration works, right? Because if you can't subdue the dog, you can't save the boy. It's Jesus' lordship that is the promise of our salvation. Who's gonna get the dogs off of us? Sin, Satan, death. They're way too powerful for us. They're snarling and they're barreling in your direction and you need Jesus with an exhaust pipe in his hand. And that's what Romans 1 verse four tells you. He's got it. He rose from the dead. He's the son in power now. Don't mess with him anymore. You, you got away with that before, not now. That's why the scripture says, in the same book, Paul will say, whoever calls upon the name of what? The Lord shall be saved. <laughs> You're gonna need the Lord in order to save you. The only Jesus who can save you is a Jesus who is Lord. A savior who is not Lord is of no use to us. Yes, think about it. Jesus Christ came in weakness, but he is no longer weak. Jesus Christ, friends, verse four tells us this. He is no longer in the manger. He is no longer wrapped in swaddling clothes. He is no longer teetering down the hall. He is no longer pinned against Roman lumber. He is large and in charge. He is, heaven is his throne earth is his footstool. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a fire. His eyes are flames of fire. He is powerful. Nobody will mess with him forever. He is the king in majesty, the king in glory. On the cross, Jesus could hardly have looked less like the son of God with power, but check him out today. You know, Ephesians chapter one tells us where Jesus is and what he's doing, here's what it says. Jesus today is located here, verse 21 of Ephesians 1, far above every ruler and authority, 
power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God subjected everything under his feet and appointed him, it's the same word appointed that's used in our text, appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. He is mighty, he is sovereign, no one can stop him. That's our Jesus. You know, the great Isaac Watts, I think, I think perhaps the greatest hymn writer in church history. And he, he stretched all of his poetic skills in the direction of trying to bring this truth across in one of his hymns. Here's a couple of stanzas of it. Worthy is he that once was slain, the prince of peace who groaned and died, worthy to rise and live and reign at his almighty father's side. I love this. All riches are his native right, yet he sustained amazing loss. To him ascribe eternal might who left his weakness on the cross. He is no longer weak. He is no longer feeble. He is mighty and he is mighty to save and mighty to rule. Turns out that the one we saw in the manger who was to be born king of the Jews is king of the Gentiles too. He's king of the nations. He's Lord over all. The latest news (laughs) as of this fine morning is Jesus is reigning now over the world. Jesus is now putting all his enemies under his feet. There is gonna be a time that his invisible kingdom, powerful as it is, but invisible as it is, is going to become visible, obvious. The whole world will see it. He will establish his reign and establish his kingdom. His kingdom will break in with unimaginable glory and power, right? That day is coming, the visible side is coming, but already today, he's ruling in power. He is working his purposes sovereignly out by his spirit and through his church and through the proclamation of the gospel. And wherever the gospel is proclaimed and people are receiving him as king, his kingdom work is establishing itself as ground zero in that new location, awesome things are happening through him. So what's that mean for you? What's that mean for me? It means your best move for your joy now and in the age to come is to give him all your worship, all your allegiance, all your obedience to hold nothing back. Your wisest move, hold nothing back back from him. And isn't that where Paul goes immediately in verse five? Look at verse five. You see the language there? I'll just unpack it along the way. Verse five, through him, that is through the risen Jesus, we have received grace, meaning we've received an ability from God, and apostleship, meaning we've been sent by God to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In other words, now that Jesus is ruling as king, let the world start obeying him. And may it be an obedience that springs from faith, springs from trusting hearts that see his glory and grasp it 
through the message of the gospel. So I come back to the statement, summary statement at the beginning. If we grasp the identity of Jesus Christ, Messiah, offspring of David, risen king, we will bow in reverent worship and offer ourselves in unreserved obedience. So I, um, I hate spoilers. And um, so I've been staying off Twitter because I plan to watch a movie this week. And because it's a fallen world, people out there on Twitter are gonna be telling everybody what's gonna happen um, in the movie. And so, I, so that's why I'm avoiding it. I hate all spoilers except one. And we've got a major one right here in our text. First Advent, Son of God came in weakness to save and the world rejected him. Second Advent, Son of God will come in power to reign and the world will revere him. The name of the sermon today is What Should the World Do with Jesus? We could use the words of the Christmas carol, let earth receive her king. That's the cosmic summons. But then there's a personal one, right? Let every heart prepare him room. That's you. Make way for the king who comes. Make way now. Gladly receive his rule because you'll receive it one way or the other. So receive it now and receive it gladly and joyfully. You know, in another sense, the reality is we already know what the world, not should, what the world will do with Jesus. And how do we know? Because the Christ hymn that was sung 2,000 years ago, the church knew it. The church called it 2,000 years ago. Here's the way it's gonna go down. He's coming from heaven. He's gonna humble himself and die, even to the point of death on a cross. But God is gonna exalt him. And he's gonna give him the name that is above every name, and at the name, at the revelation of the name of Jesus, here's what's gonna happen. Every knee will bow. In heaven, just so we're clear on how universal it is, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will be a global liturgy. Everybody will know what to say and what to do. It will be the most reverence charged moment in the history of the world. And everyone will be on bended knee. What should the world do with Jesus? What the world will do with Jesus is bow. Christmas and Easter, they come and they make some edgy and surprising claims, and they leave us with some commands, something like this. If we grasp the connection between Christmas and Easter, see to it that you don't disregard the king who came. Give him your worship. Give him control. Let us gladly receive his authority, and let us boldly proclaim his gospel.